Todd Murray is a musician, author, professor, and biblical counselor. Pastor Todd is a graduate of Moody Bible Institute and also Moody Graduate School. He's currently serving as the pastor of Family Ministries at Grace Emanuel Bible Church, affectionately known as GIBC, and is also teaching at the Expositor Seminary, a unique church-based seminary attached to GIBC. It has now grown to include a network of 11 different churches spread throughout the USA, all connected by modern technology. Prior to coming to GIBC, Todd served on the pastoral staff at the, church, at the Bible Church of Little Rock, Arkansas, for 28 years. Todd and his wife Tandy have lived in Jupiter, live in Jupiter where they were married in 1982 and have five children, three of whom are married. They're also grandparents to four. It also suggests that Todd and Tandy have an effective prayer life. They told us last night on the way home before coming up, they had been praying that they might see snow. I pleaded with them to stop praying. (laughs) We do want to thank both of you for accepting our invitation to come and be part of our 2020 Family Life Weekend Seminar. We've appreciated so much your ministry among us these past couple of days. We are looking forward to this morning. And then just before you come, my dear brother, on a personal note, Please take our greetings and expressions of love back to your GIBC family. They accepted two displaced Canadians a few years back, and Cynthia and I were there for a two-year period, and they really prepared us for this next uh, season of ministry in our life, and we will be forever grateful, and um, we, we will never be the same. Uh, Please join me in welcoming Pastor Todd Murray. Thank you for the hospitality you've shown to us. Um, The the truth is that we've had more time to talk uninterrupted uh, in these past few days than we ever did when they were in Jupiter with us. And I really didn't know the impact that the ministry of our church was having in their life. The only impressions I had of your dear pastor was the humility uh, that was demonstrated so profoundly when he showed up as a student in one of my counseling classes. And there was a sense of almost embarrassment on my part. Here was a seasoned peer, a seasoned colleague with plenty of pastoral experience who could easily have stood up and taught the class. And I remember at first feeling uncomfortable, Uh, but his winsome smile and obvious humility uh, just said, "Um, I'm I'm here and and, and I just want to be stimulated. And I could sort of understand if I was... If I was in a place, I would, uh, I would hope I would have the humility to seek any kind of spiritual input I could. But I'll tell you this, the, the outstanding trait of your pastor is this rare combination of deep convictions 
with that hallmark humility that is Pastor George. And a humble minister is a useful minister to God. And so encourage your brother, but don't let him get a big head because then he'll be useless to you. Uh, but uh, Cynthia, I hardly knew you at all and just I uh, appreciate the, the gracious. But isn't it fascinating in the body of Christ? You don't have to know people and you just sort of pick up like you're picking up where you left off because while I may not know every detail of your biography, because we all love Christ and have experienced the joy of pardon and redemption, I already know the most important thing about you. You love God because he first loved you. And this we have in common. And so you meet the Lord's people and you may not know their name, but I've likened it to going to a family reunion and meeting cousins you've never met. So to come here to Woodstock and meet you is to meet members of my spiritual family that I've just never had the opportunity to fellowship with before. So thank you for the warm reception you've given us. We don't deserve it, but we have enjoyed it. Thank you for enduring snow on my behalf. When I went to bed Friday night looking at my phone and it told me that there was a 100% chance of snow all day, I'm not kidding you, I went to bed with a little bit of that same feeling you had when you were a kid on Christmas Eve. <laughs> so, so thank you for being so accommodating, and uh, if you don't like it, it is my fault. So, Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to Psalm 128. While you're turning, I also just want to thank the music team for serving us so beautifully this morning. Holy, 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 they wouldn't know that, but that's my favorite hymn. Uh, it, it represents to me, a, when I went to Moody Bible Institute, a shift in my thinking, a, from, uh, from a small and low view of God to a big view of God. And so the word holiness is the best word for that. And I came to know and love that hymn then. And, and the, the song I can only imagine, who, I mean, who among us doesn't love that song? But the first time I heard that song, I was at a funeral. And I'd literally never heard the song. And a soloist sang it who was a paraplegic a cheerleader who fell from the top of a human pyramid, broke her neck, and was paralyzed. And when she got to the line... Will I dance for you, Jesus? And that song has wiped me out ever since. So what a, what a great, great thing for us. I'll take, meditating on heaven makes holy Christians. If, you're, if your focus is all here, you know, the, the New Testament writers in particular, you can hardly read a book that they aren't talking about their fixation on the certainty of the return of Christ and our reunion with him. And so uh, just enjoyed all the songs, but those two are very special to me and the Lord providentially arranged snow and two of my favorite songs. I, I preach to you as a spoiled man. Psalm 128 is, is one of a collection of psalms. As you know, there's 150 psalms, but uh, there's a little hymnal tucked away inside the 150. They're called pilgrim psalms or psalms, songs of ascent. And there are a handful of collected psalms, most of them very short. We presume that most of them were memorized. And these were songs that were sung by faithful pilgrims, faithful Jews, when they would go for the three times required of every male Jew, three times a year to go up to Jerusalem for these high festive times of worship. And, and most of the times, travel, families traveled in caravans. They traveled together, either their family or a group of families would go. And, and so these three times a year function in many ways. The, the whole calendar revolved around them, sort of like Christmas and Thanksgiving and Easter do for us. And... So this is a collection of, of hymns, and it makes sense, given the sort of the family emphasis and traveling, that a couple of these, this collection, they, they start, by the way, at Psalm 120 and run through Psalm 133, this 
collection of pilgrim songs, it makes sense that a couple of them would touch on the issues of family life. And since we've been talking together about marriage and family and communication and conflict resolution over the weekend, when do I overlook sin? When do I confront sin? What does it mean to forgive sin? Since we talked about the fundamentals of what it means to be a parent, what God calls a child to in a, their relationship with their parents, what God... parent to do in their relationship with their children. Since we've been talking about those kind of things, we can sort of think of this morning's message as the capstone of that. And so read this short psalm with me, and then we'll look together at truths which I think will benefit us all in the family of God itself. Again, Psalm 128, one of the pilgrim psalms. I, I failed to mention, if your Bible calls it not a pilgrim song, but a song of ascent, the reason it would be called a song of ascent is because no matter where you lived in Palestine, if you're going to Jerusalem, it is topographically an ascending journey. Uh, Jerusalem sits up above the surrounding landscape. So Psalm 128, read with me. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you'll be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. And may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. In this short psalm, if you'd read it a couple of times, you would immediately begin to notice one thing, and that is a strong emphasis on the fear of the Lord. Look with me at how verse 1 says, How blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Then you see it reoccurring again at the end of verse 4. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Brothers, would it be easier if I plugged the other mic back in? Would that simplify your life, Frank? Okay. No, don't be sorry. It doesn't bother me. No. Can you hear me? All right. I think it would possibly be less distracting that way. The fear of the Lord is, 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 is at the beginning. Think of it as bookends at the beginning and the end of these statements. And in between these two emphasis, this call of blessings that come for those who fear the Lord, in between the two fears of the Lord being mentioned are these blessings that come in a, man's, in a man, particularly his life, and the leader of the family. And, and so we want to experience those blessings, all of us. Look at what the blessings are. Verse 2. When you eat of the fruit of your hands, you'll be happy and it will be well with you. This is a promise to be blessed in your vocational life. Look at verse 3. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. The picture of a, a thriving and, uh, and happy woman. Who wouldn't want that? Happy wife, happy life. So, and, and thirdly, he says, your children will be like olive plants around your table. So there's this sense of enticement that the psalmist brings us when he says, your vocational life will be fulfilling, your wife will be happy and thriving, and your children will also spiritually thrive. 
There's not a family, a man, a woman, a child in this room who doesn't want that beautiful portrait. And this psalm is telling us before and after those blessings, they only come to one kind of family, one kind of home. What is the home that God blesses in this unique way? It's the home where at the helm, by God's grace, is a God-fearing man. If you were a single mother, it would mean a God-fearing woman. You can certainly say by extension, God-fearing parents and Lord willing, God-fearing children as well. Sometimes we're guilty of wanting the blessings of the gospel without the gospel itself. Sometimes we're guilty of trying to have that kind of family life without this prerequisite that the Lord says, you don't fear me, these blessings are not yours. I remember once, we, uh, I have a, a brother who's nine years younger than I am who's not a believer and, and so we had children and he, he eventually gets married and he and his wife, my precious sister-in-law, they have two kids of their own and as the kids were growing, they began consulting us for parenting advice. We are by no means a perfect family, but for my pagan brother and sister-in-law, they'd look at our kids and simply say, we want our kids to be like your kids, so give us the keys to discipline. How do you train? And so we would use that, as you can imagine, as an opportunity to share the gospel with them. And they would just have none of that. Can't you explain how to be a good parent without all that Jesus stuff? And the answer is no. You can't have the blessings and the benefits of the gospel without the gospel. And this psalm would say you can't have the blessings and benefit of a God-fearing home without the fear of the Lord. And yet the truth is, if we're honest, the whole concept, even the vocabulary of the fear of the Lord is... It's somewhat foreign to us. It's, I would say it's, it's elusive, maybe even a little bit confusing. Why is that? There was a time in church history where synonymous with Christian, the highest compliment you could pay a man was you'd simply say, you could say he was a Christian, he was a believer, or you could just have synonymously said, he's a God-fearing man. Long gone is that vocabulary from our hearts and minds now. What does it mean to fear the Lord and why is it confusing to us? I think there are a couple of reasons. N number one, I think it's because in most of life, the things that we fear are not things that we love. The things that we fear are things that we hate. I am scared to death of snakes. We had a six-foot rattler kill one of our dogs a couple of years ago in the backyard, confirming, confirming the rightness of my fear of snakes. I fear snakes, but I do not love snakes. I hate them. I will just go ahead and confess to you, I also fear spiders, and I hate them. And yet God speaks so interchangeably and so freely about fear me and yet love me. So I think in part, that's our confusion. We're used to putting things that we are scared of in a category that's as far from affection as is imaginable. So I think in part, that's, that's part of the reason for confusion. I also think there's a confusion about the fear of the Lord because, because there are some aspects of fearing God that the gospel dissolves and removes. For instance, John Newton would say in the best-known hymn in the English language, Amazing Grace, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and that same grace my fears relieved.'" 
There is a kind of fear of God that the gospel relieves. It's the, it's the fear of death. It's the fear of judgment. It's the fear of, of uh, being condemned for my sins. And the gospel gloriously relieves us of that fear. And yet the Bible would talk about men and women who love God and whose sins have been pardoned, who retain another kind of necessary and healthy fear of God. And so I think knowing that some fears got removed when I trusted Christ and my sins were taken as far from me as the east is from the west. The fear of judgment and condemnation is gone. But there's another kind of fearing God that remains. Can I show you a couple of passages that address this issue? Uh, maybe put a piece of paper there in Psalm 128, but turn back to Exodus chapter 20. Right after Moses delivers the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, the people have an appropriate reaction to the glory of God that was associated with the delivering of the commandments on the mountain. As you recall, there were trumpets, there was the appearance of fire, smoke, everything about the top of the mountain where the Ten Commandments were given was intimidating in its glory. It produced a rightful fear. And remember the Lord had warned, don't, don't go up to the mountain. Don't even let your animals touch it or they will die. The holiness of God and its unveiled passion and, and, and white hot glory. And so right after all of that, Moses come down, give the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. Begin reading with me at verse 18, Exodus 20, 18. All the people perceived the thunder and lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled, and they stood at a distance. Why? They, they were in awe. They were afraid. And they said to Moses, speak to us yourself, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, or we will die. Now their fear is being given a specific articulation. What were they afraid of? Literally dying. The glory of God wiping them out. They were afraid. So they stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick clouds. So they had this barrier. They, they let Moses do it. But look what happens in verse 20. Moses says to the people, do not be afraid. They just said, speak to us or we're afraid. If God speaks to us, we'll die. Somehow you went up on that mountain and were face to face with God and he spoke to you and you didn't die, but we're afraid we will. So please be our intermediary. So Moses says, don't be afraid for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you will not sin. Did you catch the contradiction? Do not be afraid. God's just come here to test you so the fear of him will remain and so that you won't sin. Well, which is it, Moses? Am I supposed to not be afraid or be afraid? This is such a clear verse that helps us understand. There's one kind of fear of God that is removed and another kind of fear of him that is retained. So in this context, we could say this. The fear of God judging and killing you is removed in the promise of a pardoning sacrifice. But what kind of fear remains? Well, some kind of other fear that's come God testing you. So God's appearance in this intimidating glory, its purpose is to test you. Its purpose is to induce and retain 
another kind of fear. The Lord has come to test you so that the fear of him would remain. The fear of death is removed. The fear of God and who he is remains for one purpose. Did you see what it is at the end of the verse? So that you will not sin. The fear of death is removed because my sins are pardoned. But that but by no means mean, as Paul would say millennia later, shall, because grace excels where sin excels, should we sin more? No. This kind of fear, there's a kind of fear, a kind of appropriate awe and respect for God that makes a man or a woman want to hold back from sin. Isn't that your heart as a true believer? If someone asked you at your best moment, if you could do anything in the world, what would it be? And I think if you thought long enough and hard enough as a Christian, what you'd say, if I could do anything I wanted to do, it would be to never sin again. If I could have anything. And one day that's coming, but if you're asking if I could have it now, I'll take it. Never grieve the heart of God again. Never offend God with my sin again. So this is a fascinating passage, isn't it? That shows very clearly there's one kind of fear. Do not fear that. You just said you were afraid you'd die. Do not fear that God will kill you. He pardons your sins, ultimately through Christ. Turn another place in your Bible, all the way at the other end. Look at 1 John, the epistle of 1 John, chapter 4. Beginning in verse 16, follow along as I read 1 John 4, 16. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this love is perfected or think, think matured or grown or deepened. By this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. There it is again, the fear of judgment and death replaced now by, by a, a deep understanding, a growing, perfecting, maturing understanding of love. We have come to have confidence in the day of, of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. What kind of fear? There is no fear of punishment, the fear of punishment. There is no fear in love, but perfect, or again, maturing, growing, deepening love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not yet perfected or matured or deepened in love. We love because he first loved us. Here again, the scripture's making it very clear, there is a fear of judgment and punishment, so that we don't have to cringe at the thought of Jesus' return. We, we know that we're sinners, but we know we've been pardoned. By faith in Christ, we know that we're declared righteous in God's sight. And so he says, if you're still cringing in fear about God judging you or condemnation or punishment for, fear, for sin, then you simply need to grow in your faith and deepen your trust in the love of God shown to us in Christ Jesus. So here the apostle says there's a kind of fear that represents an immature understanding of the love of God. So grow in your belief in the love of God and watch that fear fade away. 
And yet the New Testament writers would write as well about how we should fear God and we should work out our salvation with what? Fear and trembling. And so this psalm, before we even look at it, we have to establish what is the fear of God and what the fear of God is not. So if you're taking notes and want to jot down some things, turn back to Psalm 128 again and we'll begin to explore this. The fear of God is not a fear of divine punishment, that's clear. Psalm 130, just a few pages away in your Bible from this psalm, Psalm 130 says, there is forgiveness with you so that you may be feared. You see, the the, the fear of punishment is not what the fear of the Lord is. We know that we can be forgiven and still retain an appropriate fear of God. It's not contradictory with forgiveness or fatherly love. Psalm 103 talks about how the Lord loves those who fear him. It's not contradictory with the worship of God. Many of the Psalms in the book of Revelation, you see pure worship ascending to the Father in eternity future that's characterized by those who fear Him. So the fear of God is not contrary to love. The fear of God is not contrary to worship. The fear of God is not a fear of divine punishment. So what is the fear of God? Here are several definitions I've picked up over the years as I've thought about this subject. A. Anderson says, an attitude of reverence and awe which does not become terror or dread but finds expression, a fear that expresses itself in prayer and praise and obedience and loyalty. It's not the cringing fear of a slave. It's the fear of a child with the highest regard for their parent. Charles Bridges says, the fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. Oswald Chambers says, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you have everything else to fear. How true. Jerry Bridges recently went to be with the Lord and he wrote, it is an automatic reaction to our consciousness of God's transcendent majesty. We just sang, holy, holy, holy. There's a reaction to a holy God, and it's this healthy fear, not fear of judgment or punishment. Fear and awe, intimidated by a glory that's sort of off-putting and attractive all at the same time. Minister and commentator O'Donnell says, the fear of the Lord is trembling trust. Trembling trust. John Murray wrote, it is the essence of impiety not to fear God in all our circumstances, in which our sinful situation would make us liable to God's righteous judgment. This psalm tells us of the blessings that come to someone when they don't fear man, they don't fear death, they don't fear judgment, but they do retain this healthy, worshiping fear of God. Blessings come to that home. The Bible is full of statements, particularly Psalms and Proverbs, about the blessings that come to those who fear the Lord. Solomon would even write, the starting point of the Christian life is fearing God. It's the beginning of all wisdom. It's the beginning of all knowledge. And somehow we begin to think, I don't even really understand the fear of the Lord. And surely it's for really mature Christians. It must be second, third base, maybe even a home run. And Solomon would say, no, you don't understand anything about the gospel yet if you don't understand the fear of this kind of God. The fear of the Lord has an emotional aspect to it. The fear of God is also a set of thoughts. It has a rational aspect. 
If you're taking notes, you might jot down later. Look at Psalm 34, particularly verses 11 and following, where the psalmist says this. He says, come, my children, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So the fear of the Lord is not just an emotion. The fear of the Lord is, is, is a rational concept that can be instructed or taught. In Psalm 19, the psalmist uses the fear of the Lord as actually a synonym for Scripture. Also in Proverbs 2, verses 1 through 4, there's a series of if statements. If you are a humble man ready to be teachable, if you are a prayerful man, in verse 3. Verse 4, he says, if you're diligent to seek God out and study his word, then you will discern the fear of the Lord. So fearing God is more than an emotion. It's something that can be taught and learned. In some ways, it's an automatic reaction. And in other ways, people like us have to be taught to fear him. I can't even fear you, right, God, without you holding my hand and instructing me. One final synonym to put this in our mind before we look at the blessings that come to the God-fearer. Perhaps in your experience, we could liken it to this. I remember the first time I met uh, a well-known preacher and author whose books, to me, he was a hero. To the world, he was a nobody. But his books had had massive influence on me. And this has happened to me a couple of times where I finally have the chance to meet a writer who has shaped the landscape of my mind in, in just powerful ways. And then I have that moment where at a conference or something they're speaking and I've got this decision, I really want to go up and meet them and I'm terrified to meet them. Will I say something stupid? Once I had the opportunity to sit down with a great man of God and at a meal and he's sitting right beside me and we're eating a salad, and there's a cherry tomato lying in the middle of my... It's, do I cut it and risk spreading tomato seeds onto his tie? Do I not cut it? I love tomatoes. Do I leave it? Do I just put the whole thing in my mouth? <laughs> All these thoughts, because why? I'm scared. I'm intimidated. I hold this person in such high esteem that in a way I'm afraid of them, and I'm, I'm just a little afraid of making a fool of myself. Now... In some ways, I cheapen the fear of God to liken it to meeting any human. But there's a good example of where in your experience you have simultaneously been attracted and intimidated. And that's sort of what we're talking about. God is glorious and kind of intimidating. And yet, he assures me that he's adopted me into his family as a son, and I'm attracted and I want to be with him. So it's sort of like hero worship. Those opportunities where with a trembling hand I introduce myself and in some fumbling word try to find a way to express to this author, thank you for sitting in a chair doing the lonely work of writing for you have blessed this man. That's what it means to fear the Lord. So let's look at the blessings that come to the home of the God-fearing man. Back in Psalm 128 again, how blessed, that's a general statement, how, how happy, how, how it, it's really, it, it, it's, it's in the plural, it's blessednesses. How many are the blessednesses that come to everyone who fears the Lord? A man, a woman, a father, a mother, a husband, a wife, a believer in a church, everyone is blessed when they fear the Lord in this way. And notice he follows up with a second prerequisite. You want to experience the blessing of God that's about to be detailed in the home. Not only do you fear God, but that fear of him demonstrates itself in your life in a specific way. Who walks in his ways. That's just a poetic way of saying they obey God. They willingly submit to God. 
They're, they're not a donkey that uh, David would write in Psalm 32. Do not be as the horse or the mule with, that have to have a bit and bridle put in their mouth and dragged, otherwise they'll not come near you. Instead, David says, be one that, the Lord says through David, be one that I can just counsel with my eye, meaning I can just look at you and go this way. And so this is a God-fearing man. Because he fears God, of course he walks in God's ways. Many people who profess to fear God, however, do not walk in God's ways. In Psalm 95, God would say of Israel, that whole generation that rebelled and chronic unbelief and grumbling and complaining, disobeying God, refusing to go into the land he'd promised them out of fear of giants and armies. God would have to say of them, they do not, they will not walk down my road. They did not fear God. They would have claimed to have been God-fearers. So you want to know if you're a God-fearer or not? You can measure on the God-fear-o-meter is equal to the how much do you walk down his ways o meter If you fear God, not perfectly, but you will, as a pattern in your life, walk in his way, go down his path, You'll not be resistant. So that's where he begins. A general, proverbial, true statement. Everyone who fears God experiences amazing blessings in life. But then what's especially on his mind, and can't you picture this caravan? Uh, Imagine a bunch of you taking a bus trip together as a church. And so that's what it would be like. Uh, uh, Several people who worship together on a regular basis now going to Jerusalem for high holy days, singing this hymn together. And they're going to sing about how if you fear God, there are special blessings that trickle down right into your family life, into the joys of domestic, private, hidden, sweet family life. What are those blessings? Number one, you'll see, blessings that come for your labor. So blessings in your work, verse 2. When you eat of the fruit of your hands, if you're a God-fearer, you will be happy and it will be well with you. You, he, this is a promise for blessing in your work. We don't have time to look there, but in the psalm just prior to this, Psalm 127, another well-known pilgrim song about, about family life, he says there, this is the opposite. He talks about when you burn the candle at both ends, when you, it is vain to stay up late and rise up early and eat the bread of toilsome, painful, frustrating labor. In your attempt to keep up with the Joneses, your life will be bitter When you're a man who fears God, whether you have much or little, your work will be blessed and fulfilling. You will eat the fruit of your hands. You'll experience blessing from your labor. You will be happy and it will be well with you. Why is that? Well, because the God-fearing man, in, in part, a man who fears God, will work hard. He'll work heartily as unto the Lord, and that is, uh, that is often blessed in the workplace. He'll have an eternal work ethic. He'll be serving God in his vocation. This is not a promise that for a man who has a job at a factory that isn't particularly stimulating or fulfilling, this is not a promise for a more exciting job. This is a promise that you will find blessing in your labor no matter what it is because you do your work to provide for your family and loved ones ultimately as unto the Lord. So it's not like a little magic formula like um, you, if you do this, then God blesses you. It's No, you set yourself up. You assume the posture of a humble God-fearer and make yourself, as it were, not earning his blessing, but you make yourself a candidate for his blessing. 
God is opposed to us when we're proud. What does he promise? He gives grace to us when we're humble. Do we earn grace by being humble? No, but you set yourself in the posture where God loves to pour blessings. He will resist you when you're proud. He'll grace you when you're humble. Here, your work will not be fulfilling if you do not fear God and do it as unto the Lord. Fear God and your work will be blessed. That the, the paycheck, the payoff, the return for your labor, there'll be a happiness in you that a God-fearing man cashing and depositing his paycheck will never experience. But not only are we promised to be blessed in vocational work uh, or any kind of labor, anything you attempt as unto the Lord, but there's also a very specific blessing that comes to the wife who's blessed to have a God-fearer in her family or to the woman herself who is a God-fearer. Look how a thriving, spiritual, God-fearing wife is described. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. A fruitful vine. The vine, of course, is a source of of grapes. And grapes are associated with joy, and they're associated with wine, and they're associated with celebration and blessing. And so to call your wife a fruitful vine means that she sits in her home, and it's just a picture of spiritually thriving. Women, this is not saying that if you don't have a God-fearing husband that you could not spiritually thrive. But the the pressure is really on us, man, to just say, your wife should be, your wife should arrive in heaven a more holy woman, not in spite of you, but because of you. That's the picture that's being drawn. And a woman who's been blessed with a a man who's a believer and fears God, you are a blessed woman. And, And that blessing is poetically described as, being a fruitful vine. It's interesting, the psalm writer uses a, a fascinating word when he says that she'll be a fruitful vine within your house. That word for, for within, it, it means in the innermost part of the house, the very center of the house. And I've, and I've wondered why talk about her being in the, what's the significance of a wife being dead in the middle of the house? I, I think it's twofold. One is I think it's meant probably to be a contrast to the way the, the strange woman or the adulterous woman in Proverbs is described as a woman whose feet are never at, do you know what it says? They're never at home. So the idea of this woman who's uh, the woman about town constantly in these uh, horrifying depictions of the, the woman of folly or the strange woman from implying from another culture or the adulterous woman. So I think in part it's a picture of of that she's a contrast. This is a reference to purity, but probably also just in the sense of the the center of gravity of her life, the center of her universe is not strictly limited to home, but that's that's where her anchor of her heart is. Just as you'd have to say, well, why would a man who fears God experience great blessing in his work? We'd have to say, why would a a woman with a God-fearing husband be able to feel settled, if you were, in the innermost part of her house Well, because if she's blessed with a God-fearing husband, he will love her and serve her and teach her and lead her, protect her spiritually, pray with her. And there's a sense in which she can experience the unique umbrella of blessings that come men when we fulfill our roles as God-fearing men. But the psalmist is not done there. He says, uh, this emphasis on fearing God issues with yet another blessing and it touches on your children. Look at the description of children. A wife is like a fruitful vine 
Look at the second half of verse 3. Your children will be like olive plants around your table. Let's translate the image for a minute. That means that, that the father is to be like the gnarly old olive tree. And what an olive tree would do is, of course, you'd harvest olives, and olives, olives were extremely valuable. If you had, if you had an, an orchard of olives, that's the same as saying you're a rich man in, in the Palestine. Olives are used for in the enjoyment in food. They have medicinal purposes. And really, you could trade with olive oil. It was that valuable. I discovered, in part, why it's so valuable. Do you know how long it takes to take an olive pit and go from a planted olive pit to an olive-producing olive tree? Forty years. Now, of course, we've hybridized and GMO'd our, our olives now. You can get them much faster, but, but true old olive trees, it's a, it's a long-term project. So picture the 40-year-old olive tree, and not all the olives get harvested. Some of them fall to the ground over time, and some of those olives then sprout up. So you've got, that's why the idea of around your table. George, you and I are the gnarly old olive tree. And, and the children sprouted up around our table. So here's Tandy seated at the one end of the table as a fruitful vine. And picture terracotta pots with little olive trees sitting all around the table. What's it a picture of? Prosperity, joy, riches. Children are better riches than olives. And a wife thriving under her imperfect but God-fearing husband is better than the joy of any wine. That's what the psalmist is telling us. Who doesn't want this picture? Children thriving. A 40-year project, if you will. Our children age, range in age from age 31 down to next week the youngest will turn 17. And so, you know, when people ask questions, younger parents, what's this like, and adult kids, and when does it get easier? And I've just had to say, it, it, it doesn't get easier, it just gets different. <laughs> I asked my father once, when are you not tired all the time? He was in his 80s. He said, I'll let you know. <laughs> but he's, he's picturing, the, he's giving us a long-term view, a 40-year project, if you will, of raising your kids. It doesn't end at age 18. I will have to say, I do love my relationship with my adult children. The same children who at one time said, I really don't want to hear your advice, who will now sit on the, the foot of our bed and say... Can you help us in our marriage? Uh, that's, it's nice to have kids who I would want to be my friends even if they weren't our children. That's, that's an undeserved blessing. Believe me, we gave our children plenty of reason not to want to be our friends. So maybe the only thing they graduated from our home able to do or certainly had a lot of practice at doing was, uh, was learning how to say, please forgive me. And yes, I forgive you. So ours is, you hear a guy you don't know, he comes in and you hear he's a family ministries pastor. We're, we're normal people, just like you, imperfect parents, trusting God. When I was a young parent, I remember I, I would meet parents with kids I admired and say, I want my kids to be like that. And, and I, your kids are amazing. And they would say, look, it's just the grace of God. I thought they were being humble. And now I realize, now they're just being honest. That's actually true. If you have a child who comes to love Christ and does not reject the faith, that's the grace of God. That's not due to excellent parenting. None of us can take credits for the, the spiritual, any spiritual maturity we see in our kids. So look at these rich blessings. You can't have these blessings without being a God-fearing man. And so he makes that clear in verse 4. 
by reiterating the prerequisite for these blessings. Verse 4, behold. You know what that word means? Stop. Stop, look, listen. Think about this. Don't read those blessings and say, yeah, I want that. Read those blessings and say, I'm going to remind you one more time, they only come as a result of something. And that's fearing God. Behold, stop, look, listen at this. Take time to think about it. For thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Fearing God does mean overcoming a lot of other fears. What are some of the fears associated with family life? Fear of having a prodigal child. Men, sometimes it's, it's fear of what other parents are thinking. Wives and mothers, you've probably experienced that. Worrying about what other people in the church are thinking about your kids. Husbands, sometimes you fear your wife more than you fear God. Wives, I'm not accusing you of any wrongdoing. It's just a weakness in us. Sometimes we're tempted to want to please you even more than we want to please the Lord. That will not issue in this kind of blessing. You must fear God above all others and all else. Finally and briefly, look at verses 5 and 6. Basically, he's taught us this lesson about you want to you experience blessings in your home, fear God. You can't miss that message. And what happens next is just a brief benediction. It's just a, a, a brief, if, again, these were sung songs, so this is probably just a brief, in music we would call this a cadenza, or, uh, or, or, or maybe even a tag on the end of a song. And so what he does is issue forth the scope of God's blessing. So we've seen the prerequisite for those who receive the blessing, the description of those who, seek, who get the blessing of God, and now just the scope of this blessing. It, it's far beyond the home. Look what he says, the Lord bless you from Zion, making it clear again that the source of blessing comes from God. By the way, when you see the word Lord spelled in all four capital letters in your Bible, that means it's, it's God's covenant name, the name Yahweh, the name that God chose for himself when Moses said, who should I say sent me? The self-existent one, not merely the eternal one, the one with no beginning and the no end, but the needless one. The completely self-existent one, the utterly independent yet not distant and uninvolved God. The God who makes covenant promises and always keeps them. The promise-making, promise-keeping God. That promise-making, promise-seeking, uh, keeping covenant God bless you and your family from where? From Zion, Jerusalem, the temple, the seat of blessing. In essence, it's saying this will come from revelation, from scripture itself. Zion is the seat of revelation. So the source of the blessing, God himself in Zion. <laughs> the extent of the blessing? May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all your days. From your hometown to, uh, to, to everywhere. The prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Verse 6, indeed, may you see your children's children. So this, this thought, this prayer, this benediction of multi-generational effect. From your hometown to the whole nation of Israel. From your children to your grandchildren and beyond. The benediction, the blessing. It's, it's his way of saying there will be no other way, no other means by which any family will be blessed except this one. Fearing God is central to happy, blessed family life. Do you fear the Lord? If you want to know the answer to that, you're probably going to have to ask yourself, what are my other fears you need to be aware of what your tendencies are that would displace your fear of God 
And simply ask God to give you grace to work hard on those issues. You fear calamity more than God? You fear financial disaster more than God? You feel, fear a failure in your health more than God? Do you fear what other people think of you more than you fear what God thinks of you? These are all the silly fears that must be displaced as you pursue this healthy fear of God, which is not a fear of death and judgment, but remains a fear like a child standing in awe of the parent they so admire, love, and respect. What's it really a fear of? A fear of displeasing him. Not for fear you'd be kicked out of the family, but just like my kids, when they know if they're hiding a sin from me, do they want to make eye contact with me at the breakfast table? No. How you doing, sweetie? I'm fine. You do realize that, that praying and reading your Bible is making eye contact with God. Make eye contact with God. Do it frequently, and that will calibrate your heart more and more over time to fear the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we need help. We can't fear you right without you. We cannot put our hand to any kind of labor, work, or project without your grace. And we certainly cannot have happy marriages and family life without your help. So knowing how many times we've failed in the privacy of our home behind closed doors, we thank you that there is a Savior who pardons, not for the idea of sin, not, he didn't, Jesus, you did not die for the concept of evil, you died for the very evil that happens sometimes in our home. And we thank you for pardon through your cross. So we need not fear judgment and condemnation and death. And yet, Lord, we do want to retain that healthy fear that says, I love you so much. Father, I hold you in such high esteem. We sang earlier this morning uh, the, the pre-service song, you are a good God, you are a good Father, you are a good Father, and you are. Forgive us for doubting it and cringing in the wrong kind of fear while failing to develop the right kind of fear. Lord, strengthen our faith. Uh, loft and inflate our view of you to where you become a God who's worthy of fear and reverence and awe and compliant respect. So, Father, thank you for the blessings that come when we humble ourselves as a God-fearer. Help us avoid the resistance from you that comes when we're proud, self-sufficient, and end up fearing everything else except you. Help us walk your way. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Just before we're dismissed, uh, Pastor George asked if, uh, if I would slip over to the piano and sing a song. I actually offered to do this in the light of one conversation that I had uh, during our time here. And uh, we, we were just exchanging stories uh, about our life and Cynthia was talking about the recent passing of her father and some of the tender ways you as a church expressed your love in the midst of her grief. And it, it just reminded me, even of my, my own father's death was an extremely traumatic uh, event, extremely complicated and messy. And uh, the way, you know, it, for about 26 years, it had been me going to the emergency room, me visiting my congregation when, they, when their loved ones died. And now for the first time, my loved one has died. And I was, it's not that the church had never ministered to me, but they'd never had the opportunity to minister me in trauma. And all of a sudden, they're with me in the emergency room, and they're with me, you know, making funeral arrangements, and they're with me in my home in my grief. And I was so touched by the body of Christ ministering. And haven't you often wondered when you've gone through a crisis and seen your brothers and sisters come around you, haven't you ever wondered to yourself, how in the world do worldlings without the church survive 
traumatic, you know, and, and grief and difficult times, and scary experiences in life, and, and they have no one to turn to. Not only do they not have God, often they don't have any human relationships. And, uh, and, and so this, I, I wrote a song then, when my father passed in 2008, thanking the church for their ministry to me. And you, you can make this your own song. Any, just think back to some period of time where the Lord used his people to carry you when you just thought, I don't even know if I can take another step. And so we were crying out in the midst of the confusion of my father's death and saying, Lord, please help us. Please guide us. Please strengthen us. And what we discovered is the way the Lord answered that prayer for help is that he answered us through the body of Christ. And so this song is called, He Answered Us With You. So it's my thank you to my church. You might make it your thank you to the Lord in your heart now. And in part to give uh, George and Cynthia a voice even to say thank you for uh, that recent ministry to her and her grief. I think the purpose of that was hoping that the novelty would wear off. And uh, I don't think I've done enough of it yet for, for that to actually happen. But yeah, that, uh, I sent that to my kids already, and they said, that's a first. So I think I'm ready to graduate to a, a, powered, uh, a gas-powered one next. So thanks, uh, Frank, for giving me that education. We 
Thank you, Todd and Tandy, for the time that you spent with, with us. We've been blessed, and we would uh, just trust that you'll know God's blessing on both your lives, your home, and your ministry as you continue to serve him. And then for us, I would like to close with that uh, great benediction that the Apostle Paul uses in the book of Acts when he spent some time with the elders from Ephesus, and probably this is the last time he's going to see them. And he writes these words as part of his farewell. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. God bless you. Thank you for coming out this morning. I trust that we've had an opportunity to worship God, and that will prepare you for the week ahead. God bless you. Have a great week. <laughs>